uh, wildlife recording sounds like a, such an exotic occupation, almost obscure, and yet it's um, your life's passion, Douglas, right? Yes, indeed. Hello, everybody. That's good to be back with you, Aista. So we were listening to the sounds of Weddell seals, leopard seals, and orcas underwater recorded at the sea ice edge in Antarctica. And yes, I've, I've had the, the privilege and fortune of recording wildlife for almost 40 years at this point. So it is very much a lifelong passion. And I'm fond of telling people that, like, like many little children, I was fascinated by animals growing up. I just never grew out of that fascination. You know, I think most people, when they're seven or eight, turn their attention to other toys or other things. But for me, it's stuck. And so growing up, I had the privilege of moving around a lot and encountering you know, different habitats and everything from deserts in North Africa to, you know, forests in Northern Europe. And with that comes a wide variety of wildlife and birds. And so I was always interested in that and never lost that interest. Great. So, um, yeah, that's one thing, to be interested in wildlife. But then why recording it? And then ultimately, the question is, what do you do with those recordings, right? Do you listen to it before you go to sleep? Or, or what's, what's the deal with that? Well, I think, I think, you know, you hit it on the head. It is sort of a, a, a very particular passion and interest. And I think for me, it grew out of um, two things. One, having the opportunity to be in different places and to be aware of the differences in soundscapes based on where I was living and just having a sensitivity to that, as well as having an interest in music. And I think I sort of came of age at a time when recording technology was changing. It used to be big, clunky, reel-to-reel tape recorders. Those were my earliest recordings, you know, in the back of a car with, you know, long extension cord. or um, And the advent of the digital age meant that recording devices became digital, they became smaller and more portable, so that I could get out and do what I love, which is hiking and, and being in the, in the woods. I mean, as a child, I always played in the woods, and, and so this was a way to connect it, interest in, in listening with the interest in wildlife and, you know, being outside. And I think, too, a couple of things help sort of cement this. Uh, one, again, the interest in music in a broad, broad sense. Uh, but I also, when I was 14, I read a book by Jane Goodall, who many people may know uh, is a woman who's been researching chimpanzees since the 1950s. And so I read In the Shadow of Man when I was 14. And that book was just so profoundly uh, meaningful to me. I just thought, my gosh, what a, what a great job, you know, being out uh, in the woods all the time and learning about chimpanzee behavior. So I found her to be a real inspiration as a young person. I also went to uh, a school in northern Scotland that had a premium on outdoor skills of hiking, mountain rescue, things like that. And we did a lot of camping and learning those skills. But I had a wonderful biology teacher. Uh, Bex Richter was his name. And he had come over from Germany during the Second World War as a refugee. 
And he used to take us outside of class for those who were interested, and there were very few who were interested in doing this, and taught us how to listen to birdsong, taught us about natural history in the Scottish Highlands. And that, for me, was just was a wonderful respite from, you know, being in school and to just do something and connect with a man who, who cared about us as students, but also cared about the natural world. So maybe we can just have a short listen to some of a dawn chorus in the Scottish Highlands. In terms of what I do with the recordings, it's pretty broad because I figure, okay, now you've got this stuff, now what? And so my my original impulse behind this was musical, again, inspired by the work of John Cage and, you know, the discoveries that I've been making around what's called musique concrète, that is music that's derived from everyday sounds, and in this case, wildlife sounds, you know, stimulated interest in me and what are the origins of music? Why do we as human beings make music? Because we're certainly not alone in making sound and noise, if you will, or communicating acoustically. Birds do it, mammals do it, insects do it. So I was always sort of fascinated by the unanswerable question of why. And I think by recording, I get it's a form of meditation almost. You're very present in the act of listening. It's also a very solitary activity. Let's face it, you don't go wildlife recording. It's not a team sport. It's something you do by yourself. And so I enjoyed the solitude. I enjoyed the, the almost meditative quality of being heightened in my awareness of listening, of being completely present in the moment. And I still love that. I've, I've always loved that because I do think of it as a sort of meditative form. But it also involves a lot of research. You have to know where, when creatures record, the time of year, seasons, species, things like that. And I could never hope to know everything that I'm recording. But it's often the first steps taken is to do the research about a given habitat. What might I hear if I'm there? And then it's, so it's a combination of a lot of library work, a lot of research, but when you're out there doing it, it's almost like hunting. You have that heightened state of awareness, only it's not about killing something. It's about finding your way to be in the right place at the right time to hopefully get those sounds, to capture them. So I like the combination of research and that physical activity of being out and gathering the recordings. It's just a way of feeling alive. And then once I have it, so beginning with music and digital sampling was also new in the 1980s, I could take what used to be done with tape recorders and cutting up pieces of tape to make sound montages. I could now do this in a digital realm using a computer, using a sampling keyboard to much greater degrees of control and expression by manipulating birdsong and some of the other sounds that I was capturing to transform them into a musical expression of sorts. 
the idea of manipulating sounds in this digital world, it's, it's like having a tool, a microscope to explore sounds in depth. So in the last episode, we listened to an excerpt of Aria Lacuste using the sounds of the 17-year uh, cicada. And that was a good example of sort of early expression musically. And then over time of doing this, and I still work with natural soundscape in various contexts, from music in the concert hall to recordings to radio pieces. Um, but it became clear to me in terms of the work I was doing in the field, I was connecting more and more with wildlife biologists who were doing research into birds or different species or just habitats. And so part of my research invariably would be reading scientific articles, but also contacting scientists and you know, saying, hey, I'm going to be in your area. I'd love to connect with you to learn more about what you do. And by the way, I make sound recordings. I'm happy to share these with you, either for your research, if it's relevant, or just for you to have for you know lectures or what have you when you're working with your students. It was a great way to connect with people because I had something to offer and the skills to be able to bring that um, expertise to what they do. And again, sometimes it was very direct, but other times not. So what began as an impulse around really understanding music and the origins of music as a human expression and how it connects us to the animal world, I began to realize that the places I was seeking out and going to are increasingly endangered or under threat through habitat destruction, overpopulation, a variety of situations, you know, climate change. So there's a greater sense of urgency that this has to be about more than music. So I began to become involved in how do I frame these, give these recordings a public face or life beyond simply music um, to include scientific research and also exhibition design. Natural history museums were something that had interested me since I was a child and had the good fortune to have had parents who valued going to museums. And so that was something we just did all the time and uh, would go to museums and we loved it as kids. So there was always a sense of valuing that. And I remember reading years later that more people go to museums than to live sporting events. And so museums occupy a very important role culturally, uh, particularly in Western society, but in different expressions around the world. And I figured, well, that's a great way to connect and reach people if I can use the recordings as part of an exhibition where people could experience these sounds that they may never get a chance to experience in real life. So I've always tried to think as I've grown and evolved and matured as an artist, to, to think more broadly about the applicability and accessibility of my recordings beyond just the satisfaction I derive from making them. I see myself as sort of a steward of these sounds, that they're meant to be shared. They're meant to reach people and a way for me to connect with people and hopefully for them to connect or reconnect with the natural world, whether it's their backyard or a hike in the region that they live or a trip abroad it doesn't really matter. It, it's about trying to connect people with something that many people feel they've lost, which is that connection to the natural world.
Yeah, I think it's a wonderful way to kind of um, capture the memories of a place through sound, not through just pictures on your phone, you know, but through sound, through those soundscapes, you know, because that's... Uh, that's what really brings the the, the emotional um, memories to you back, right? Because otherwise, some of the pictures, let's face it, can look quite similar, you know. But soundscapes are usually very distinct and very different. But coming back, um, I know that, you know, one of the ways in which you use your wildlife recordings is, again, film. And uh, uh, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about this one particular case uh, in which is... Um, which is Werner Herzog, a documentary film, Encounters at the End of the World, where you, was, you were specifically asked to use uh, very particular uh, wildlife recordings of yours. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And then maybe we can listen to a few of those. Sure. Um, the, the opportunity to work with Werner Herzog, a, a director whose work I've admired for many, many years, was was really thrilling. I mean, what's not to to love about working with the people you admire and respect? So it was a real gift, and it came to me the opportunity through uh, mutual friend Henry Kaiser, who worked on music for the film, but who I had introduced to the U.S. Antarctic program, under whose auspices I had traveled to Antarctica three times through their artists and writers program. So. I had the fortune of being the first music composer, sound artist to go down in 1996 and then went back again in 99 to 2000 and again the following year. So I had made three trips and had gathered a significant amount of sound material. And when Henry approached me on behalf of Werner to work on the project, I said, yes, I'd love to. He said, great, I'm going to work on music. If you could handle the sound design and the mixing on the film, I think we'd make a great team. And so Werner agreed much to my delight. And what was interesting about working with him is that, you know, good directors understand that sound is a huge part of the film experience. You know, George Lucas once famously said, sound is 50% of the motion picture experience. And who better but George Lucas of Star Wars fame to say something like that. But I think Herzog too has a very keen sense of the importance of sound. So, our early conversations revolved around sound. What's down there? What can we listen to? What opportunities do we have to have sound either drive part of the story or that are sort of an indispensable part of the sonic identity of Antarctica? So I didn't travel down with the crew because I already been down three times and I had a lot of material. So I just sent him samples, a lot of samples uh, for him to listen to. And he, he was making mental notes. This is before he went down. And uh, when I finally met him, it was sort of a classic Herzog moment. We met on a Sunday morning at an industrial freezer plant beneath the streets of Los Angeles because he wanted to have the experience of what it was like working in a deep freeze cold environment and what he might run into because he'd be recording the dialogue. Um, so it was, a, it was a wonderful first encounter uh, at the center of the Los Angeles world before he took off to the ice. But there too, it, the film's not a, a natural history film, but it, it's informed in some senses by the soundscape. It's very much focused on people, their motivations for going to Antarctica. So there are some wonderful moments in that film that have uh, a sonic hook. And the piece that we heard at the beginning uh, under the sea ice edge 
involves Waddell Seals. So there's just this amazingly beautiful, haunting calls that, quite frankly, reminded me of electronic music from Karl-Heinz Stockhausen from the 1950s and 60s, but it's all organic, no artificial ingredients. So we can just have a, a, a quick listen to just Waddell Seals without the leopard seals and the orcas from a slightly different location uh, to remind folks of just how magical those are. So those were Waddell seals recorded at Big Razorback Island in McMurdo Sound in Antarctica. And they were recorded underwater using what are called hydrophones or underwater microphones. Okay, great. So now we kind of, we, we got a little bit, we got to be Werner Herzog for a few moments and uh, to listen and listen to, to what you, um, what you have given him to listen, you know. So thank you for that. Uh, I also want to go back to uh, one of the things you said uh, in the first part of this episode, and that was uh, uh, the skill, developing a skill of active listening or, uh, you know, engaged listening, kind of hunting for sounds instead of hunting for flesh, right? And um, I think as a society, you know, we are really losing the skill very rapidly. We kind of, uh, sometimes even in my classes or in my trainings or in, in my engagement with the audience, like, it, it, you know, in d- different discussions and events, I, I am very kind of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm shocked sometimes by the inability of people to listen, you know, and, and, and to hear what the other person is saying. And I think so much of, of so many of the problems that we're experiencing as, as a civilization stems from that. I think that's a great observation. I think we struggle in the West with silence. And I think listening is born of silence. And to not fear silence, to not rush in to fill a silence, either with conversation or you look at, you know, what I think of as an invasion of public space with music, with sound. I mean, you go to a shopping mall or you go to a restaurant you know, it's not enough for people to simply be and interact. You have to have a soundtrack. So there's a kind of sense of of needing to fill silences. And I think deeper listening and their deep listening, to quote uh, composer Paulina Oliveros, is about being present, is about allowing silences. And by silence, I mean, it's not just Uh, the absence of sound, because there is no such thing except as an abstract idea. But maybe stillness is a better way to frame that, that we have have to allow things to go uninterrupted. And I think once you begin to value that, the the listening part becomes part of your, your practice, the ability to listen to others and for me, the ability to listen to the world around us, 
because we're only beginning to understand the complexity of how sound functions more broadly in the soundscape or the landscape. You know, soundscape is a term from R. Murray Schaefer, who um, recently passed away, but his legacy, I think, is profound for, for folks who are interested in the power of sound in our lives, not just as a concert hall experience in music, but active listening as a way to feel connected to community and to feel connected to, as I was saying earlier, the planet that we inhabit, that it, it becomes a means through which we feel those deeper connections and bonds as social creatures, but also as creatures in a continuum with, with animals with whom we share the planet. And I, th I think that's the most profound aspect of listening. But it's a practice, like meditation. You have to still and quiet your mind. And for me, it's about being present. It's about having all of your attention focused on what's around you and not being distracted by half a dozen other things that sort of fill our brains or cell phone calls or, you know, whatever it is. So I, th I, th I think that's where this comes from in me is a place of, of seeking stillness, not as an escape, but just the opposite as a way of being present and alive in the world. Mm. So what's happening to the world, to, to some of the species, to, to, uh, to, our, to the nature around us? from the sound of things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disturbing. The, the soundscape pretty much since the Industrial Revolution is getting louder and louder, sort of ticking up very slowly in much the way we describe planet warming, you know, a half a degree centigrade here. I'd say we've got a decibel here or a decibel there that with, through our machines and the sheer numbers of human beings on Earth, the soundscape itself is becoming an endangered entity uh, or one that is at least out of balance and dominated by human forces. The Anthropocene era, you know, the, the era that's dominated by our species. So I, I think there's a lot at stake as um, the soundscape around us becomes transformed and dominated by human activity. And Again, it comes down to that sense of losing our connection to from where we came. And this is not a romantic idea. We live in a planet with finite resources. And for all of our you know, cognitive development and abilities, we still have yet to grasp with the essentials of human survival. So I think there's a tendency to look at human beings as having to save the environment, that I think we do have agency in terms of the problems we face with climate change. They're not all human, but human beings certainly made a big impact in them since the Industrial Revolution. But I think it's arrogant to think that we as people can determine the outcome of everything and more as a call of humility. And it comes back, for me, the valuing of silence or stillness is sort of a cultural reevaluation of a sense of connection and identity as planetary beings in a very finite world. So I know it sounds a bit abstract, but I try through my work to give that a concrete representation or expression and by sharing it in different ways through film, as we were saying, or museum exhibits or through music. I think what's important for me in all of this is that we're 
overwhelmed in a way by the news and by the facts and the data. And I believe that's very important that there is a scientific basis for our sort of rational scheme of the world around us. But I think what's missing in that is a, a sense of the emotional connection or the sensory connection. You know, we know the world through our five senses, essentially. The rest is abstraction. And so for me, the soundscape provides a direct pathway into that sensory feeling of a place. You know, as you said, um, it, it sort of it connects us on a visceral way in a way that photographs, for example, don't. And R. Murray Schaefer, who I mentioned earlier, who invented the term soundscape, has a quote that I'm sort of paraphrasing here that we're always at the edge of visual space looking in, but we're at the center of auditory space listening out. And I think that as a, as a way of being, as a way of transforming our valuing of each other and the capacity to listen is important. So for me, the, the recordings are a way, are a gentler way of, of making a point without berating people for you're consuming too much plastic, your carbon footprint is too massive. We, we exist with these paradoxes, and I myself am guilty of it. You, know, you can't go recording in Kenya without a huge carbon footprint to get me there. So I, I appreciate the contradictions, or some would suggest hypocrisy, of what I do. But I also try and balance and be mindful in the decisions that I make but ultimately come back to that sense of responsibility that this isn't just about me capturing cool sounds. That's me as, as, as an agent to, to bring these experiences to a shared community, whether it's mediated through film, radio, television, or a museum experience, that I have a responsibility or duty to those sounds, to sharing them with people, to invite them into a place of, of awareness and of consciousness that touches more on the heart than it does the brain <laughs> in terms of, uh, you know, what's important. And again, to encourage people to consider the richness and beauty of what's there. If you appeal to that, where the heart goes, maybe the head will follow and people say, ah, maybe I can act differently or, or make my way in the world slightly differently rather than berating people for what they're not doing. In this episode, is there anything we can listen to? Yeah, so I'd like to play for you just um, a lot of talk about uh, polar ice melting. And I think for most people, they may, you know, think of a photograph or think of a map and go, yep, there's a lot of ice up there and down there, Antarctica and the Arctic. And some ice calving, as we call it, the, the break off of ice from the terminal of a glacier into the ocean is pretty spectacular. So let's have a listen to some ice calvings, um, sort of a, a montage that involves both over open air recording, but also hydrophone recording underneath the water. So let's have a listen to this, and then I'll talk a little bit about what we can learn from this.
good. So listening to multiple ice events or calving, I'm always sort of hesitant, um, you know, in, in recording these things. I love recording, but it's it's always a little um, daunting because you don't want to get too close because when these come off, some of them are the size of city blocks or apartment buildings that tumble into the ocean and generate a huge wave. So definitely want to be aware of your surroundings, your proximity, and just be listening very, very carefully. Sometimes these events are very, very sudden, but sometimes you'll hear a creaking and a groaning as the event of actual calving begins, and it can sound like an explosion after that. So there's a tremendous thrill involved, but when you look at the sheer volume of ice that is being shed into the ocean, it's huge. And I was working with a scientist, Erin Pettit, a couple of years ago, and she had approached me because she had heard some of my recordings. Uh, it may have been a radio program. I can't remember exactly how. But we had a really interesting discussion that she was studying the sound of ice and how it can inform our understanding of habitat dynamics. And one of the things she found is that the fall off from ice the noise that it produces as it melts is think of what a you know uh, a um, glass of iced tea on a hot summer day sounds when the ice is melting. You get these little percolating sounds and pops. That that sets up an acoustic screen, and she was finding that seals, to avoid being hunted by orcas or killer whales, would often seek shelter where they could basically dodge the sonar impulses of orcas. So all of a sudden we realize that, you know, the habitat is alive. It's not just ice falling into the water, but this is a dynamic part of their sort of survival technique is to have a kind of radar sonar blocking uh, ability by, you know, hiding underneath or behind ice. So, and there are lots more that we understand acoustically based on the propagation of sound waves from this, how much ice, the volume is coming based on reflections and echoes of this. So I think we're only dimly understanding how sound can inform a different way of reckoning the world around us. And another exciting area is data sonification. And what that means is taking sets of data. It could be ice core, um, sort of history of ice, uh, when you drill down through you know, several kilometers, thousands of meters of ice, captured in those ice cores is a chemical record of what the atmosphere was like. Little, tiny bubbles that have remnants of gases, atmospheric gases. And so we can understand through that how climate has changed. And it can be represented graphically, but it can also be represented sonically. So you can hear climate change, the sort of surge of warming periods and cooling off periods by translating gas concentration numbers into musical material. And this, in fact, is what I did working with Kronos Quartet, is give different chemical compounds and saturations a voice through the different instruments of violin, viola, and cello. So I, I think there are ways, again, I come back to informing our senses and appealing to that sensory capacity as we arrive at an understanding of the natural world around us. Mm. So will we have more seals or less seals because of the more ice breaking and, and falling into the ocean? 
Well, I think one of the things we're discovering is that certain polar species are adapted very specifically to ice conditions. And um, that's just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Pardon the pun, but it really is true that creatures on this planet have adapted very, very carefully to the environment. And for example, the woolly mammoth that disappeared, they were not hunted to death. I was just reading an article recently that demonstrated that, in fact, they were victims of climate change, that their grassland prairies where they fed, their sort of gentle giants, uh, disappeared and gave over more to wetlands. So as a species, they basically starved to death. And so I think with, with ice, we're seeing with certain species like Adelie penguins, uh, they rely on ice and a certain rhythm of ice expanding and contracting around Antarctica to sustain them, to sustain their livelihood. And the same is true with emperor penguins and the seals that feed upon them. So you're looking at, with these kind of climate changes, you're looking at a collapse of entire ecosystems and all the life that depends on a delicate balance or rhythm of expansion and contraction of ice. So, and a lot of creatures just don't have the ability to evolve and adapt so quickly on what has taken thousands, if not millions of years to develop a particular finely tuned response to the environment. So, I'd suggest we're going to see less seals, we're going to see less penguins, we're going to see less of everything as the um, landscape or the ice scape changes. And so, too, the kind of regulatory function of the polar ice caps is going to be a huge factor in rising global temperatures as well as rising sea levels. We're already seeing it with storms and um, flooding in, in places that affect our daily lives. It's no longer an abstraction for scientists to mull over. It's something that has very real human impact and economic impact. And again, all of this is a discussion of human survival. It's not about saving the whales necessarily. That'd be nice. It's about saving ourselves. And until we get that idea, it's all really uh, for naught, basically. Mm. So have you recorded any of those species that are now, you know, grappling with those changes, um, climate changes, uh, and uh, we don't know if they're going to adapt to them soon enough, you know, before they're um, extinct? Yeah, so um, let me share with you a recording of walruses who are very dependent on the ebb and flow of ice, you know, as a surface to haul out on, but also the impact that it has on their food supply. They're, they're mostly benthic feeders, meaning they feed from the bottom and uh, they feed on shellfish. And so they're very much in a situation of being threatened by climate change and ice cap melting and the availability of ice, again, to haul out, to, to rest. You know, they're big animals. They expend a lot of energy. Um, so this is a recording, and I, I thought this would be interesting because most people, when they think of a walrus, maybe they think of a big grunting hulk on a beach somewhere. And that's true. They do, you know, grunt and groan and what have you. But underwater, they sound very, very different. So what you're hearing uh, in this track is a hydrophone, again, underwater microphone recording 
of walruses. And these are mostly male walruses that are displaying between them, in much the way birds might do in what's called a lek or a sort of communal calling situation. And they gather in a very kind of loose circular fashion and they produce, you're going to hear three very distinct sounds. The first that's the most pronounced is a clattering sound. And that is them grinding or gnashing their teeth, not their tusks, but their teeth. They have lots of teeth behind those tusks. And so you'll hear this knocking sound that kind of builds and builds and builds into a crescendo. And then you'll hear this very beautiful, almost like a gong or a bell sound that is their vocalization. So you get some percussion, you get a little bit of the pitch sound of the gonging, and then you're going to hear what sounds like radio static or a fire burning. And those are the sounds of millions of what are called trigger shrimp, tiny creatures that produce a an impulse as a way of stunning prey. So if you think of a shrimp hunting. It may go for a larger fish, but it's not going to eat the whole fish. It'll produce this sound that can be very loud, 100 decibels, like a rock concert, which from a few centimeters away can be very powerful and stun a fish momentarily, just the sonic impact. And they can just go grab a scale off the fish's tail or side. So it's, it's, it's hunting through acoustic shock technology, basically. And so those are the three sounds that you hear uh, co-mingled in this recording, which was from the Bristol Bay area of Alaska. So let's have a listen, shall we? Mm-hmm. Okay, exciting. Well, thank you. It's not every day that you hear, uh, you know, walruses um, and, and, you know, underwater. So, so thank you for that. Um, anything else? Anything else you think is worth listening uh, uh, before? It, well, I mean, I don't want to kind of sound very sad before it gets it because extinct, you know. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, let's, it's like, you know, it's becoming like into this eulogy thing now. But uh, anyway, <laughs> eulogy for nature. Uh, but uh, anything else exciting that you would like um, to share with us? Well, I think it, it is fun to share. That's that's the joy of doing this. So thank you for having me and for, you know, the great questions and conversation about this um, these issues. Yeah, so I think to just round out this episode and for today's listening, um, I'll finish by taking us to New Caledonia in the South Pacific. And I was working with a group of scientists there on um, a kagu, which is a type of bird that looks like a heron, but is flightless. But they're about the size of a small heron. 
and we're working on a plan of inventorying and safeguarding them, really, as a, as a conservation initiative. The Kagu is, is, is important not only for its own you know, benefit, which is inherent to just being a value, but it's one of those emblematic species um, that is important culturally to the Kanak peoples there. And so lots of, you know, rich cultural associations, as there are with many species. You know, in the United States, it's the eagle. In Aus, uh, New Zealand, it's the kiwi bird. So we, ha we have these connections with animals. So anyway, in recording and working with the science team in New Caledonia, I had the opportunity to work with a scientist and we were out one evening and set up some microphones listening for them when we were surprised in hearing the following recording, which has two species. One are friar birds, which are fairly common throughout the South Pacific. But mixed into this is a crow honey eater. In French, it was called Mélifage Noir. And the scientist I was with said she had heard one once in 10 years of research. And so this just happened to be a dumb luck moment. The crow honey eater, there may be one or 200 individuals left, and they're indigenous to New Caledonia. So this was both luck, but also uh, came as a side benefit of listening for kagus. So I thought I'd share this with you. It's so beautifully rich. And I think the point is, is you know, how could we let such beauty leave us, basically? So friar birds and the crow honey eater. Let's have a listen. Okay, thank you very much for sharing that with us. So what happened to this recording? Uh, where else beside your archives is it now? So a lot of the, the recordings that I made in New Caledonia went into an archive for scientific studies, specifically around the bird that I mentioned, the kagu. But uh, we also published through the assistance and sponsorship of the World Wildlife Fund a compact disc back when compact discs were available to the public um, as something to be able to sell to support conservation efforts in New Caledonia. So it was available there. I've played this on different radio programs as well. And so looking for different opportunities to share it. And so those are two of the ways, uh, sort of giving it a public face. 
and um, always open. What's interesting is that over the years of doing this, I may do something immediately following, as in this example, where it went right to a CD that I produced for World Wildlife Fund and the uh, Kagu Conservation Project, which was a 10-year project. But it also finds its way like this into a podcast, into a radio broadcast, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point it'll find its way into a museum exhibition of some sort. So always looking for opportunities, and sometimes years go by and says, hey, remember that, that, that recording that you had of this or that? Let's have a listen to it, you know? So I, I keep everything and look for opportunities to give it new life and new expressions, whether it's musical or informative or informational. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it takes a lot of patience, you know, this kind of work, not only in producing it, but also in then distributing it, you know, at the right, yes. time, at the right time and at the right place. Uh, but there's another occupation that also takes another pa uh, that also takes a lot of patience and that you uh, also chose to do in your life and that's teaching and we and it is an occupation for which actually I met you because I was your former student at the Newhouse School of Public Communication so uh, and many artists kind of uh, and especially artists that like you say oh I'm very introvert and I like the loneliness uh, of this occupation or the you know the, the the kind of solitary nature of this work that I'm doing uh, they kind of you know sheer away or steer away from this shy away from this kind of job um, but you haven't so, and it's almost like doing the opposite to what you're saying, right? Oh, I like the solitary nature of my work and I'm going to teach now to, I know, a few dozens of people who never leave me alone. So, um, <laughs> let's talk about, let's talk about that, uh, in our next episode, uh, next week. So stay tuned. Great. Right.